Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast. I am Abby Mickey, and we are here to talk about the Tour de France Stage 11. I've got Ronan McLaughlin. Ronan, hello. Hi. How are you? I'm good, Abby. Thank you. Hello. Kaylee Fretz is at the bottom of Mont Ventoux after spending the day at the top. It's hot down here. And Nathan Haas has joined us again. Yeah, I'm, I'm back. Thanks for having me back on the show. It's been a joy. <laughs> a genuine joy. <laughs> it sounded... Like it was sarcasm. It wasn't sarcasm. <laughs> Before we dive into stage 11 of the Tour de France, this episode is brought to you by Continental. So Mont Ventoux has been ascended once again, actually twice in today's case. That got us thinking about all the people who jump on their bikes to follow the tour or take on long distance rides. Amongst Continental's range of tires, there's one that's made for going long, the Gator Hardshell. I love this one for winter miles, like absolutely love this. I swear by this one in Colorado in the winter for long miles. It's amazing. As the name suggests, the Gator Hardshell is ideal when it comes to extremely long service life or for rough surfaces and rugged tarmac. Puncture protection and mileage are the strengths of the Continental Hardshell protection. The three-ply carcass... Mm, that sounds, I don't know how I feel about a tire being referred to as carcass. Each layer with 60 TPI covers the entire tire and makes it a real bastion against anything the road can throw at you. Plus, the outer sidewalls are reinforced with Duraskin fabric, providing even more reliability. So whether you're touring, riding Ram, or riding at Vont 2 many times, Conti's Gator Hard Shell Tires are the puncture resistance flagship among tires. Thank you so much to Continental for sponsoring this episode. I think Dane should just read the ads from now on. He's really yeah, good Dane at it. Dane was so good. Yeah, he can just do it in one go, and it's amazing. He's smooth like butter. He is smooth like, smooth like butter, like a criminal undercover. Ha, No? Anyone? BTS? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm down. Sick. I'm good. All right, so <laughs> let's dive into stage 11 of the Tour de France. It was the Vont 2-2 day, so the Vont 4 day, won by Wout Van Aert. I mean, pretty rugged day out there. What do you guys think? I'm sitting in the press room, at the back of the press room at the moment, and at the front of the press room, right this very second, is Tadej Pogacar in his little post-race interview that he has to do every single day because he's in the yellow jersey. And he just admitted to us, to the world, that he cracked a little bit today. And, I, you know, I think we can get into the stage win, which was incredible. And also, just yesterday, I think I said that Walt Van Aert was not looking like his old self. And, of course, 24 hours later, and proven horribly, totally wrong, right? But I wanted to start with just that little, that little tidbit because we've spent so much time over the last week talking about sort of where this race stands from a GC perspective. Can anybody beat Pogacar? Is he just... Are we, are we really just sort of waiting this out now to Paris? And it, we, it's a good reminder today that we aren't, right? And granted, no significant time was taken. There wasn't some massive shift in the GC, but... A crack is a crack, and if he can crack today, he can crack again. And I think that his his competitors will take some solace from that. Uh, they will see that. They will see that he sort of kind of struggled in the heat on the lower end of the climb today. And they will look at the Pyrenees and say, we have an opportunity. Uh, and, yeah, I, I think that this race 
is still interesting from that perspective. Still, the GC race for me is still on, and I think today was a good reminder that just because a rider looks fantastic on one day does not necessarily mean they're going to look fantastic every single important moment for the next two weeks, right? I agree to a certain extent, and and I also would love to see the GC battle heat up a lot more in the coming weeks, but I feel like it's Iran who's now sitting in second on GC. He didn't look any better than Pogacar on the climb today. He looked like he was suffering a lot as well. And so did Carapaz. And the ones, the guys that are all kind of sitting within, well, five minutes of Pogacar, none of them are looking any better than he's looking, except for Vindegar. I think he looked great today, but just maybe waited a little bit too late. If it had been a mountaintop, he maybe would have gotten 30 seconds, but with the descent, he just didn't have enough. He didn't have enough space to kind of get any, any time. That descent is also, it's not like it's a fast twisty descent. It's not like when you go over the top, you actually have, have enough steepness to be able to stay away from people that you've dropped on the climb. It's very, it's a gradual descent. It's a pedaling descent. So it's a kind of descent where if you're in a group of three, you have way more momentum than you do just one guy riding on their own. Yeah, I I agree with Abby on this. And, you know, I think we saw Pogachar crack um, and he will probably play it up in the media a little bit because I think he wants to avoid being the big bully of the Tour de France. I think it it sort of played into his narrative to maybe talk that up. But my impression was today was just a big, sticky, hot, arduous day. It was a race of attrition. And I think when Vingegaard went and he was following, I think he probably sort of looked in terms of, you know, what investment is this going to take out of me on a pure, like, you know, neurological level to follow versus just looking back and seeing that Iran and co were just just behind and I think he knew exactly what Abby's saying is that descent is not something that someone you know has 30 seconds and stretches it out to a minute if they're a good descender it's exactly that you know if you're turning with three riders you'll bring them back and um, I think you know it was nice to see that he's human but I think you know if we look at the other players like Abby said Iran didn't look incredible um Vingegaard was certainly strong, but I think, you know, a lot of these younger guys that are chasing GC for the first time, they can have these purple patches in the race. But like we saw with Ben O'Connor today, that purple patch can very quickly turn into something that's, you know, a bit more of an explosion on another. So I think in terms of the overall consistency, I still think Pogacar is a clear favorite, not just because he has five minutes, but because of his physiology. I guess I should clarify that I, I don't think that today means he's going to lose the Tour de France. <laughs> that we're a, we're a long, long, long way from that. I'm just saying that you know him him, him admitting to having a, a brief bad moment is just such a departure from what we saw on essentially the last two times he really tried to go for it, where he just rode away from everybody, right? And it, it was not even wasn't even close. And so there was a humanity. I think was was is the right term. He looked human today. I absolutely agree. It plays into his narrative. It plays into not only the narrative of him not being the bully, but it plays into, you know, he's already getting asked doping questions. Those pop up all the time. It it behooves him at this point to look like a human being. Uh, Not to say that he did today on purpose. I think that that was genuinely probably just didn't want to go that fast. But there were some other reasons for him, you know, 
to potentially lose a bit of time, to take that little risk that there were reasons for him to to lay off the gas a little bit. And I'm trying not to get too carried away there, but it, it you know it is it, it does bring a little bit of excitement back into a GC race that we were fearing uh, might might have been over. Like when you consider especially that uh, Vinegard was so good in the time trial. Uh, and he rode so well in the in the Vuelta last year for for Roglic, and you know he is certainly a rider who is new to GT, GC racing, but at the same time he has shown that he's got the potential uh, of of any of the riders who are you know I was going to say following closely behind Pogacar, but I don't think there's anybody actually closely behind him at the moment. Uh, but but he's got the potential going uphill as he demonstrated today. He is time trailing well as he demonstrated uh, just last week. Uh, and you know when we look at Pogacar compared to Saturday and Sunday when he literally just you know rode, rode away from his nearest contenders, it, it was different today. And that if it was the same scenario as we've seen on Saturday or Sunday, there there is no chance that Pogacar would have even considered that decision of, you know, do do I need to make this effort? He was literally just riding away from from the likes of Vinico. Whereas today, uh, it 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 wasn't all that that easy for him and. Uh, I think you know, as as whatever about this tour, I, I still kind of believe that Bogacha will hold on. At least we're showing, we're seeing some signs that there might be a race in it. We've seen riders crack spectacularly in the past in three week grand, grand tours, but looking forward into the future, I think Vinigo is is you know going to be a really a rider to watch. And when I seen him finish third in that time trial last week, I sort of thought to myself, well, here's a here's a guy who rode quite well on the. Uh, What's the name of that viciously steep climb in in Spain that they did in the Vuelta last year? The Angry Roo, um, and for for the Angry Lou, yes, uh, for Roglic, he has ridden well in the time trial. And I sort of thought to myself at the time, well, you know, Roglic has had a bit of misfortune this year in the Tour, you know, being so badly injured in, in a crash. Is he going to get another chance, or is someone like Vinigo going to step up in Jumbo Visma and and be the protected leader this time next year? I mean, I will say this: uh, the GC battle for Pogacar is, you know, he's he's got a healthy cushion to be able to sh- crack a couple more times and still win the tour. But as far as second to seventh, everyone's still really, really close to each other. The, today, Ben O'Connor, he he cracked big crack. Unfortunately, that was um, spectacular to see his facial expressions whilst he rode backwards. But did you see who paced him, though? Richie Port was just, like, helping him out a little bit. It was, it was it heartwarming. It was so wasn't heartwarming. It? it was a little bit heartwarming. It was really, yeah, yeah, it was nice. It was really nice. Um, but Rigo jumped to second, and he's only, Vindegaard is only 14 seconds behind him, which I think for, and and then Richard Carapaz is only one second behind Vindegaard. So it's only, it's, it's still really, really close amongst those guys. Hopefully, they keep fighting each other and I don't know, and in the process of them fighting each other, maybe Pogacar is caught in the middle of it and, and cracks a little bit more. And this race kind of continues to be exciting like it was today. I, I think, I think that the, the minor crack was exciting for two reasons. One, we may get a more exciting last week of the tour Two, you know, people are already talking dynasties, right? They're already talking about, oh, well, he could win. He could win the next five. He could win the next six, whatever, whatever it is. And I hate when, I hate when we start talking about that so quickly, because one, we had that exact same conversation about Edgar Bernal two years ago and look where we are now. And two, 
you know, you see moments like that and you're like, yes, he is a human being. These are not robots. These, they, they cannot just automatically end up at that level again every single year. You know, the riders that are able to put together a bit of a dynasty, um, they're few and far between. And just because you win one Tour France, even by a lot, does not necessarily mean that you're, you're going to win the next bunch, right? Uh, yeah. So anyway, I like, I like seeing riders as humans. And uh, sort of speaking of that, I was up on Von 2 today. I was up for the first lap and then dropped down the backside uh, as they went around again. And... I just, I like going to bike races, which sounds weird. And Ronan will back me up here. Generally, when you're at the Tour de France, you don't actually see much bike racing. Uh, so to stand on the side of the road and just actually get to watch the guys go by, in particular, some of the guys who were not having a great time <laughs> climbing up Mont Ventoux, you can see on their faces the first time they're going up, they're like, oh God, I have to do this again, right? Because I'm about a K and a half from the top. You could just see on their faces, and it, it, it gives you empathy for them. So anyway, I put together like a very short little audio bit from the top that we can listen to. About one and a half K from the top, just before the barriers, which they put up, which is the most fun place to be, just before the barriers. You can't go to the barriers. No. And the choppers are coming. Yeah. All right, tell me your names. Uh, we are Chutibo and one Thomas. Uh, it's a beautiful day to watch cyclism, and we think it's beautiful places too. We have the f- chance to watch two top. We drink uh, wine and uh, love baguette. Yes. No. <laughs> no, but we feel very lucky to be there after the COVID time, and uh, to be lucky to be with our friends. And uh, we hope it will not be rainy and having a great time with Julien and Philippe. When did you come up? Uh, this morning we were to Montserrat uh, ski resort next to Monsanto and so we, we took a walk took a walk to, to come uh, to the top of the Mont Ventoux and we are very happy to be there to be, to be together and to feel this tour again what do you uh, what do you got in the cups there qu'est-ce qu'il dit Merleau-Ponty it's very good it's beautiful to be at the top of Provence with French wine mm. uh, Provence wine and uh, to show how to be uh, in France and how to live a Tour de France. You guys got the fancy box, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it's part of the tradition to take the fancy box, I think, because it's really important to have and, all uh, those clothes. We like um, um, le maillot vert. Yeah, we love the, the white jersey. Macavendish. Yeah, the, Macavendish. We love Macavendish. The green jersey Macavendish will win again. Push as it goes. Yes, yeah, yeah. yes. We will Great champions. Them. Great game. Yeah, we happy. But. We don't like uh, Froome. Uh, it, is, uh, it is a tricheur and uh, a dopé. It is a uh, picouze. Drug. It's okay. I'm not English. I'm American. It's fine. Uh, 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 we, we ate Lance Armstrong. Uh, uh, gen- genetic experiment- experimentation. We have a clear favorite in the breakaway today, <laughs> unsurprisingly. There is a lot of Alain Julien. Looking at their faces, I am just reminded that they have to go up again. They... <laughs> yeah, you can literally, you can, you can see them from Dope. You can see them look up at the... So we're about a one and a half K from the top. They can see it from here. We are up well above treeline. When the clouds clear, 
they can see the top. And I'm not sure if that's a good thing at the moment or a bad thing. Just a reminder that they have to do this again. And actually, the second one is harder. There's a certain amount of empathy, I think, that you gain standing next to the road as they climb. And you see their face up close and the sweat and crusty that you just don't get on television. He gets a back slap. I think this is this is, has to be one of the last sports on earth where you can just slap a world-class athlete as they go by you. And nobody bats an eye. In fact, you might even appreciate it. And we're out of here. What Richie Port did today for every Australian cycling fan was brilliant. And even more special in the sense that he comes from a particular Australian cycling dynasty of a man called Andrew Christie Johnson, uh, who's put, I would say, almost half of the World Tour riders into the World Tour, basically from his own pocket and his development team in Australia. It's where I came from. Um, so, you know, when, when any of us have success, we kind of all get a little buzz from it because we feel like we're honoring this amazing guy that's helped us out so much. But um, I'm a little bit worried that it seemed as though he actually was pulling Ben because maybe that's the difference between Ben or Carapaz being on a higher position in the GC. So, you know, it was maybe only for a very brief moment that we saw that on TV and maybe we're buying into it being more of a thing than it was. Um, but at the same time, I hope Richie's not being, uh, being uh, chastised for what he did. I feel like Richie was not so much pacing Ben up the climb or making any kind of difference in Ben's uh, Ben's speed that he was going, but was more just being encouraging to a young Australian rider who was sitting second in the Tour de France general classification this morning before the stage started. Can we talk about Ineos and, and what on earth they were doing today? I was going to say maybe Richie Port was just trying to uh, soften the kickback that Team Ineos were going to get by doing a nice gesture on the on the final climb because, yeah, I think a lot of people were watching Ineos today thinking, what is going on here? And there was a lot of a lot of harsh comments flying around online regarding their tactics today. Look, I, I actually think the tactic made perfect sense and, and I've seen the criticism and everything and you can understand it, but, you know, in all things, sometimes attack is the best form of defense and if Pogacar was just left to go early, you know, if he's had the legs that he has had previously in this race, you know, what if he started attacking from 5k out? That's a huge loss. So I think what they were trying to do was just limit the amount of kilometers that Pogacar had available to throw down. Um, you know, the outcome looks a little bit different because Carapaz cracked also, but, um, I think, you know, if Carapaz was having a good day, he's been the only one that's actually looked as though he can follow Pogacar prior to today. So I was thinking that they were limiting losses in terms of the range that Pogacar could attack from. And also, you know, it's it's one of those things in cycling when people believe in you, you believe in yourself. And sometimes when you're the hammer, it doesn't feel like you're the nail. 
and um, you know, I I never blame a team for trying. Oh, I, that's an interesting take on it. it. Makes makes sense as well. I was kind of watching it, assuming that perhaps any else were trying to you know make it a, a really hard day, uh, and then sort of death by a thousand cuts. Not necessarily today, but over the course of the next week, there is a lot of hard stages, and perhaps they're just you know hoping to uh, chip away at Pogaccia but by but day by day because for anybody who watched the start of today's stage it was ferocious from 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 the gun i think there was about 60 kilometers perhaps of of attacking before finally a small group got away and then it was joined up on the first ascent of the von two by by a larger group that included white von art but it was by no means an easy start for anybody today and then very quickly Enios got on the front and and sort of maintained a, a strong tempo uh, through the first climb and then obviously onto the final climb, but um, you know that I, I was thinking perhaps it's it's just to ensure that there is no downtime on today's stage and that makes it horrible for everybody, I guess. But uh, they were probably probably focusing on Pogacha as well and just trying, you know, as I said, death by a thousand cuts and who knows it'll, if it'll work. We we'll probably only see in a few days' time, but um, we probably can't judge them based just solely on today's result. And and I think if if Pogacar has a race that isn't hard all day, that's kind of feeding into his biggest strength, which is his huge ability to just blast away from everybody. So I think if UAE weren't going to play the tactic of making it hard, because obviously that doesn't play into their favor, and they don't care if the breakaway wins, I think um, I think there was a lot of thought behind it, and and I don't think anything Ineos does is ever without a lot of consideration and a lot of thinking and. You could see by the commitment of the riders. I mean, Kwiatkowski went probably 5K past his limit. Like We saw faces like on the mask. He was basically Jim Carrey today. Um, like I, I know it, it didn't pay off, but I, th- I do think that there were also a lot of guys that were blunted, and we did see that Pogacar cracked from that particular pace that was put on. So I think, if anything, it just sort of fed a little bit of information into, you know, where are the weak spots? And they still are the strongest team on the climb. So, you know, if Carapaz comes into his own in the third week, I think at least today was quite informative to their tactics into the next weeks. When I was watching it, the only thing I could think of, which is along those lines, Nathan, was that they had basically decided that isolating Pogaccio is not actually that valuable. Right. Because if they if they wanted to do that later in the race, you know, you do want to make his team work as much as possible. You don't want to give them the help that they certainly gave him today. But clearly that doesn't that doesn't move the needle for them, like the ability to isolate him in the high mountains doesn't seem to move the needle for them. And so I think you're right. I think it was essentially uh, make it as hard as possible today, because if you don't make it as hard as possible for Pogaccio every single day, you're never going to actually spot the crack. Even if it even if it happens, uh, and you know, to their credit, he had one today, right? So you could you could sort of argue that the tactic kind of worked, even though their guy couldn't finish it off. Nathan, I'd be interested to get your opinion. I, uh, you know, just just looking at the final turn, was it Kwiatkowski that done the, the final turn for for Carapaz, uh, and and even that alone served to put Pogaccia you know, square in the wind. He had absolutely zero shelter from from the the direction that the wind was coming. And then, you know, moments later we've seen yes, we've seen Carapaz wasn't able to follow Vinegar, but even just perhaps that final little effort there, uh, and exposing Pogacha in, into that into that, you know, we all know how strong the wind can be in Vontu. 
also played just you know might might have played a, a factor today as well and and you know who knows how much of a, an effect that's going to have in Pogaccia as well I guess. Um, you know I think one of the things that's very easy to do when we dissect a stage is to see things as they are, but we always have to remember that writers and directors are planning things from where they think they could be. And you always have the most frustrating element of cycling is the human element. And, uh, you know, you can only go in with the best laid plans, so to speak. And Vontu is just such, I mean, it's a mythical climb in cycling because of the strange performances and strange lack of performances that happen on it. It's so exposed. Like you said, the wind is always a huge factor. Um, you know, so for me to answer your question, um, and I'm going to answer it very poorly, but I think it's such a multifactorial stage and it's never been done in this format with the two times up and then down. Um, but for me, I think there was a bit of a, a love loss in the fact that it finished on a downhill. I think I would have much preferred to have finished it on the top and really seen where things were and where people were exposed because a lot of things came back together and I think it would have been a very interesting GC had it not. Can we talk for a second about the stage winner, about Wout Van Aert? Because he came into the race not feeling as he had hoped to feel coming into the tour. Even Kaylee said yesterday that he wasn't the Wow Van Art we saw last year, but he went from getting, you know, podium place in a sprint yesterday to winning a Vaunt Four stage, which is, I mean, that's really impressive versatility right there. I'm taking full credit for his victory today, by the <laughs> he way. He listened to the um, podcast and he was like, that guy, I'm going to show him what I can do. He's like, cool, cool flex, Kaylee, watch this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, literally, literally yesterday I was saying that he didn't look like the same rider. Right. And then he goes and pulls off it, it, sort of even more incredible feat. Um, I'm, I'm stunned by it. I mean, he's, he's, it's not a little guy. Yeah. And that was two times up Vaughn too. Like I, I'm just amazing. And, I mean, it's amazing. And it's not ride. like in the breakaway, he was just sitting there with big boys. I mean, that was Alaphilippe, Kenny Alessandro and Molima. You know, I picked Molema to win a stage like this in the tour. Um, and he was my last pick on uh, the last time I was on the podcast. But um, it was remarkable. But, you know, one of the things that I think we've more or less exposed this Grand Tour is that Cavendish is without a doubt the greatest sprinter of the Tour de France. Let's, let's scrap caring about the record of stages because he's basically already there. And whether he gets it or not is, for me irrelevant to the fact that Cav is the greatest Tour de France sprinter of all time. But when we talk about Eddie Merckx, he, he could win anywhere. And for me, Walt Van Aert is actually, I think, this generation's Eddie Merckx. He, he really is. He's, he's kind of a rider like no other in that he can, he can time trial, he can sprint, he can climb. There's so much specialization in men's cycling that you just don't see that very often. You can time trial and you can climb, but those guys can't sprint. Well, they can, but it's all limbs just like being thrown around. And honestly, it looks dangerous. And then the sprinters, you know, they don't they don't go uphill as as fast as the other guys. So for him to win out of a group that had some incredible climbers in it is really impressive yeah and i think trek kind of 
F that one up today because they had three guys in the breakaway and it's and they it's never good when you go two three. It's never good. Oh, do you know I think they just got outgunned today, Abby. I think I think they actually played the only hands they could. They they used one rider to try to push the pace to buy as much time for the breakaway before the inevitable group acceleration. Um, and he's not a rider that's ever going to win from Bontu. So I think he did a fantastic job. And then mm-hmm. Kenny sent it early, which put the other guys under pressure for the more traditional winner of a stage like that to be Boca. So I think tactically, um, again, a bit like Ineos, it could look like they titted it up, but I actually think they played their best hand um, in, in a, a more sort of team orientated sense but in the end Wout was just on a mission and when you saw his eyes on the climb it was like looking into the most focused person I've ever seen it's hilarious that you're that I'm giving Trek a hard time I'm of all of the people on this podcast but you're right I mean they did it you it can't you can't say that they didn't go all in for today's stage there was something that um that Wout mentioned in the in the post-race press conference press conference that i think was interesting as well which is that because the first hour was so hard he felt like he came out of that first hour basically less depleted than some of the purer climbers in that group and he says that he thinks that's what really made the difference for him is he basically was able to make that move easier than the guys that we would have put as as the real favorites for the stage out of that group so they were already kind of shelled and then they hit Fontu, and you know we know how just versatile he is and how incredible he can be. And that was, for him, what made the difference, is actually that first 90 minutes or so, um, which we sort of, half the time we don't get that on TV, half the time we just miss that on TV. We kind of forget how important that first 90 minutes is and how you know the amount of effort put in there can really affect the entire rest of the stage, particularly in a stage this hard and this hot. Uh, so I think that makes, that makes sense to me, right? That, 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 that it checks the boxes for for trying to understand exactly what we saw today. One, one perfect example of that was Julian Alphilippe. He spent the first ninety minutes just going bin-lids, basically uh, every move, everything. He was in a two-up attack with Nairo Quintana at one point. Dropped Quintana on the first KOM, I think it was, and then was in a in a four-rider move after that. So it was no surprise to see him pay the price for that. You know, on the on the final ascent of of Vontu as well, but. I think uh, going back to Van Aert, I think he's almost a perfect example as to why, at least in my opinion, the points classification is broken. Because he, <laughs> he can be up yesterday in a point sprint and he can win today in a mountain stage and he can be fourth or fifth in the time trial. And he sits, I think, eighth or ninth in the points classification. So, but Dane's not here. Dane's though. not here to defend me. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so that's that's about it for today's stage of the Tour de France, and Kaylee has to bounce. So, Kaylee, who's your pick for tomorrow? Sonny Cabrelli. Sonny Cabrelli? Yeah, sure, why not? All right. <laughs> he seems to be able to climb, sprint, whatever. Uh, well, well, he deserves one at this point. All right, thanks, Kaylee. We will talk to you tomorrow. Yeah, I'll be back. I'm going to go drive to my lovely hotel for the evening at the foot of Montfontu. Bon four. Bye, y'all. Bon four. Sorry, bon four. Bon four. Yeah. Bon square. Bon four. <laughs> See ya. All right. Quick before we talk about the Girodone, this episode is also brought to you by Rafa. Rafa was born from the love of cycling. They celebrate the sport, revere its greatest riders, and endeavor to create cycling apparel as beautiful as the sport itself. 
As part of their commitment to further promote the growth of women's cycling, Rafa has released a capsule collection designed for and by women within the sport. Next week, they will release a limited capsule collection celebrating Sarah Sturm's no finish line approach to racing. Sarah, I raced with Sarah in college. Fun. Sarah, who is a graphic designer, worked alongside Rafa's design team to create a collection that represents her ethos and personality. Her energy and excitement, both on and off the bike, is contagious. And you can follow her next adventures at the Rift in Iceland and then in Colorado when she takes on Leadboat. That's the Leadville 100 Steamboat Epic Gravel Race back to back. To stay up to speed on Sarah's journey and get informed with her new collection when her new collection launches, follow Rafa underscore N, just like the, the letter N, Rafa underscore N underscore America on Instagram. Thank you so much to Rafa for sponsoring this episode. All right. Giordane today was a sprint stage with the weirdest breakaway. Basically, they did a loop around Lake Como and nothing went until about 50 kilometers to go. And then uh, Lisa Longborghini and Ashley Momenpasio went off the front and got about two and a half minutes real quick in the stage. The two of them were off the front until 13 kilometers to go when they were brought back and it was a sprint finish led out by DSM, won by Emma Norsgaard of Movistar, her first win at the Giordane, but adding on to the incredible season that she's had already. Corinne Rivera in second and Mariana Voss took third. So no movement in the general classification, but Mariana Voss did take over the points jersey. The breakaway was notable because... Elisa Longaborghini is one of the top riders in the sport. She went into this race as a favorite for the general classification and had bad legs on the mountaintop finish on stage two, uh, but is still, you know, just one of the top riders. And Ashley Willen-Passio currently sits second on general classification behind her teammate Anna Vanderbregen by almost three minutes. So it was kind of a weird breakaway to go on a slightly lumpy sprint stage You usually would see smaller teams throw some riders up in there, maybe some domestiques, but the race was really fast from the gun. So I think it was maybe just too fast for some of those less experienced riders to get off the front today. Let's hear from Hannah Barnes and Ruth Winder, their take on the day. They probably know more because, you know, we can't really watch the race. Hey, um, yes, so we just arrived at a pretty fancy hotel. It's like a palace, um, which is pretty nice. Um, All settled in, ready for the football tonight, which I'm a little bit nervous for, but hopefully it's good. Um, But yeah, anyway, about today's race, uh, we did a lap of Lake Como, which was lovely. We actually got to enjoy the views, but the race was very hectic, very fast. I think we did over 40 kilometers an hour average um which was pretty fast um but no it was good um we were predicting a breakaway day which it did with uh ashley and longo borghini going up the road together and they got a pretty good gap and were away for quite a while but dsm and wnt and movistar did a big chase to to bring that back and i think we caught them with 16k or so to go um, and then from there on in, it was just thinking about the finish, trying to stay safe. And yeah, we we got organized and tried to keep Alexis safe and in a good position. But it was just, yeah, very hectic and very fast finish. Um, 
and it's actually pretty warm today it started off it was it was cloudy i think they were predicting storms gonna roll in at some point but thankfully they didn't that would have made it even crazier we had i think 18 tunnels in total so yeah there's a lot of glasses coming on and off the off the face um but yeah looking forward to, to tomorrow we're at lake garda another lake um and doing a few laps the the course actually looks pretty difficult i think five times going over a climb and finishing on top of a climb as well so yeah i'm predicting maybe another voss win um yeah but we'll see hey everybody um Ruth Winder again here, finished stage six of the Giro today and just chilling in the hotel room. Totally forgot to record this audio diary for you guys. Actually, Abby had to remind me, um, feeling pretty tired today, which I think is typical, um, four stages to go. Today was beautiful. Actually, we rode a lap of Lake Como, um, the whole thing, the whole way round. got to kind of look over my shoulder at the view a few times. Um, but for us, it was just kind of like a flat to rolly day. So we knew that getting a breakaway was probably going to be hard, but we gave it a good try with kind of some attacks one after another. And Elisa got away and was away with, um, Ashley Moom and Pasio for a long time, actually, just the two of them. Um, but then in the end, the sprinters wanted it to be a sprint, which is fair enough. We have a lot of mountain days, so they want their sprint days. So another day for the sprinters again, um, Lucinda did a good ride to get up there in sixth. We tried to do a bit of a lead out for her again coming into the finish. Um, bit, bit hectic again, but yeah, I mean, we're trying to polish off that lead out train um, that we haven't practiced too much this year so far, which has been quite fun. And Lucinda's always up for getting her elbows out in the sprint. So yeah, that was our day. Nothing too, too exciting, um, but just kind of fun to play around a bit with the attacks and then yeah with up in the sprint with Elisa um but yeah that was that was the day um tomorrow I think we get some get some hills so I'm excited about that and I'll tell you about how it goes then tomorrow the race continues with a 109 kilometer circuit race it's going to be super fun I wish we could watch the whole thing because it's uh, laps of one climb. And so it's going to be really, really fast, hopefully super aggressive and definitely tune in for the final 10 K or however much they happen to show on the live coverage. Before we talk about tomorrow's stage of the tour fronts, let's hear really quick from Jose Bain. The 12th stage starts in Saint-Paul Trois-Châteaux. A shocking revelation is that there are not Three Castles, or Trois Châteaux, in St. Paul. St. Paul doesn't even reference to the Apostle Paul. Now, the time is named after the first bishop named Paul all the way back in the 4th century. And those three castles, were they then never there? No, I'm sorry. The name comes from the Gallic tribe Tricastini, which gradually morphed into the modern French Trois Châteaux. We go through the beautiful Gorge de l'Ardèche and past the town of Bidon. Yes, indeed. Julien Alaphilippe doesn't have the best memories of this road through the canyon when a gust of wind threw him against the canyon wall in 2016 in the time trial. Miraculously, he escaped without injuries. And that picture by Dutch photographer Joris Knaper has become an iconic one. Then we end up in Vallon-Pont-d'Arc, one of the touristic hotspots of the Ardèche region. 
The town itself only has around 12,000 inhabitants, but gets flooded every summer by thousands and thousands of tourists staying on one of the many campsites, holiday homes and hotels. And you can bet the roads will be completely packed with people during today's stage. Vallon-Pont-d'Arc is known for its natural stone arch in the Ardèche River. The Pont d'Arc, 60 meters wide and 54 meters high. The I pass the arch in my canoe is a must for your Instagram feed. A million people a year are estimated to visit this site and one in 10 of those rent a canoe. You can follow the river quite far in that canoe and when you leave the bridge behind, it gets more peaceful in the canyon. But watch out for those rapids, especially in spring, when the river is a little bit more exciting than in summer times. Locally, they refer to the Ardèche Canyon as the European Grand Canyon, but personally, I feel that's a bit much for the 32-kilometer-long natural phenomenon of carved limestone. But it's for sure that the vistas are amazing. And they already knew that many thousands of years before. Humans have lived in the caves for over 300,000 years, and no less than 2,000 caves were discovered. And near Vallon-Pont-d'Arc is a big museum dedicated to these prehistoric times. Near the finish, at 18 kilometers from Nîmes, we pass a beautiful Roman aqueduct named Pont du Gard. It's the highest known Roman aqueduct bridge on three levels, which spans the Gardon. It probably dates from the first half of the first century. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site and well worth a visit, although the entrance fees are a bit steep. But it takes a lot to maintain a bridge 2,000 years old, so consider it a contribution for the future of this magnificent work of Roman engineering. Tomorrow for the men racing in France, it's a pretty flat day with some lumps from Saint-Paul-Trois-Châteaux, which means essentially the three castles of Saint-Paul. Oh, that's I like that. That's a great name. Kind of a long name to write on all of your mail, but hey. <laughs> and finishes in Nîmes, one of my favorite places in southern France. One of my most hated places in southern France. There's a really great cafe there that I love. And also there's this really awesome like clothes shop that I got a dress at last year at the tour that's beautiful or the year before. See, that's where that's where Ronan just hasn't been able to dabble. He's um yeah. misses out on that whole dress advantage. Yeah. Name name was just a place where my all my dreams went to die every every spring. Oh, sad day. <laughs> With the Toile de Passage, train the whole way through winter, think you're flying, go to the Toile de Passage, and you're not flying. Well, on that <laughs> very happy note, let's make some picks for tomorrow. Nathan, do you want to make your pick first? Well, I feel like Cav's dream run seems like it's too much of a Disney tale. And... I, I almost feel like it's building up for a bigger narrative, which is where Cav wins his 35th stage to take over on the Champs-Élysées. And, or, or at least part of me wishes to see that. I feel like that would be the most beautiful and poetic way to see that happen. So if he wins tomorrow, it's sort of getting a little bit ahead of the game. 
and I see this little lump at the end of the stage to be something that might just be a bit too much of a challenge. It might not. His, his team's very good at looking after him and then arranging the most incredible lead-out cycling has seen in a long time. But I think um, with what we saw from teams like Bike Exchange uh, a few days ago, where they were super on the offensive with any little lump that they could find, I have a feeling that this lump tomorrow in the end is going to be insane. I think people are going to attack the hell out of it. And I think that plays into the hands of guys like Buhani, Matthews, Colbrelli, and Laporte. And um, this will sound like a biased pick, but I haven't been biased so far in all of my picks. So I'm going to go with Laporte for a really surprise win tomorrow because he's been on form all season. Yeah, we should mention that Cav made it within the time cut by about seven minutes. He's he's good for the time cut today, um, which was a couple of people were worried about, but worry no longer. He did make the time cut. Only one person did not make the time cut, and that is Luke Rowe. So Ineos is down one Luke Rowe for the rest of the race. Wow, that's a big loss, actually. Yeah, it really is. Ronan, who's your pick for tomorrow? I'm going to go for Nasser Buhani. Um, partly because uh, I, f- I feel like Cav is slightly easy pick if it if it comes to a point sprint. Uh, I'm trying to go a little bit, uh, just looking for an outsider. And partly because I've seen Buhani in the French Nationals recently and he was climbing quite well there. Uh, much, much better than I expected. Uh, he was still with uh, one of the chasing groups when there was quite a few other riders who were not with it. So uh, I'm thinking perhaps he can get himself over that kick at the end, even if someone like Bike Exchange does sort of light it up uh, and be there for the finish. And we've seen him finish on second and third uh, in this tour already. So I'm going to go for Buhani. Yeah, I think that's a good, a pretty good call, Ronan. And, and I think you also have to consider who's good in messy sprints because I think tomorrow is going to be much more, much less, um, I should correct myself, much less of a traditional lead out. I think a lot of people's assets are going to be used trying to keep people in the race and to come back. So I think tomorrow is going to be a very unpredictable finish. And I think that's where guys like him tend to shine. In kind of the same vein as that, I'm going to go for Stefan Kung for tomorrow. I I don't know why. It seems like... So there's one category, category three climb like midway through the day that I don't think is going to be that consequential, but I feel like this race has been so formulaic in the way that it's been raced so far with a lot of sprint finishes. And I feel like I I just want there to be a really strong breakaway that goes tomorrow. So I'm just willing there to be a move. And if there's a move, Stefan Kung is going to be in the move and I could see him soloing away to the finish that's my pick <laughs> the only the only thing about that though abby is i'm thinking if stefan kung is going to win he's going to come to the line solo and i'm thinking back to the last time we had a finish in neem where of course jack Bauer got caught like what 50 meters from the finish mm. I, I can't handle something like that happening again so if that's happening you need to like ring me or text me or something tell me just to turn it off but yeah i can't i can't yeah, go something. for a bike ride ronan <laughs> go for a bike ride <laughs> i can't watch something like that happen again yeah, I mean, I just, I would love to see Cav win again. I'm loving this this Cav streak, but I also want 
there to be a little bit more mixing going on at this Tour de France between, you know, Pogacar the riding the way he is and also Cav winning all of the sprints except for the one that Tim Merlier won earlier in the race. So I would just love to see a breakaway go tomorrow. And it's not like it's lumpy enough for a breakaway to go, but there's like three lumps. So who knows? None of those roads around that area, they were particularly easy. Even, you know, even the profile is probably not a true reflection of how hard a day tomorrow might be. I'm not saying there's going to be any, you know, time gaps or anything like that, but it's just going to be another one of those days that, uh, you know, it's 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 just a wearing down process. So, yeah, perhaps it's uh, beyond the control of, of one single team. You're right about it being kind of a sketchy finish tomorrow because there's a wonky little... There's a roundabout with 380 meters to go, and there's a pretty intense right-hand turn as well. So the final 2K looks challenging for as far as leading out a sprint, but so did a couple of the earlier stages that Cap did win. So, mm, Yeah, look, looking at the map, it looks like they've just uh, taken the awkward option and come into name from one side of the town but decided to finish on the on the other side of the town so they've gone like almost straight through the center uh, of course which that's the logical <laughs> that's the logical way to do it so yeah it could could be uh, quite challenging coming in there the final I, I would almost extend that out to the final three kilometers has one two three 90 degree bends in it by, by the looks of this uh not overly detailed map that i have well, that's all we got for today. Thank you so much for listening to the Cycling Tips podcast. And thank you to Nathan for jumping on this podcast with us once again. We will be back tomorrow to talk about stage 12 of the Tour de France. Bye. Bye.